Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Health Points. Uh, I'm your co-host Ben Wilkins and with me is Pete Jenkins. Hi everyone. Uh, today we have Agnesa and Paula to talk about the use of gamification for health education. Agnesa is the Assistant Professor at Harriet Watt University in Scotland with a research focus on how gamification can be used to support sustainable development and facilitate sustainable behaviour. She has a PhD in management science and teaches systems thinking and contemporary business technology. She coordinates a gaming research group that leads research on gamification for sustainable behaviour at the Centre for Logistics and Sustainability at Harriet Watt. Uh, Dr. Paula Zapata is a marine biologist with wide experience in territorial planning, working on a wide array of different people and projects, uh, looking at organising capacity and building events and leadership programmes. She is currently the leader of the strategic focus in water, land and territory at the Universidad Pontificia Boliviana uh, in Colombia. Uh, she is interested in the interface between social and environmental aspects of ecosystem management and in exploring how local communities interact with their environment. Uh, she is strong at uh, looking at ways to overcome cultural and language barriers that, and regularly working with inter-institutional, international and multicultural teams. And she also has extensive experience in creating partnerships between recognised international research institutions and organisations. Agnesa, Paula, it's great to have you on the show today and it's great to have such a calibre uh, of uh, experience and background in so many areas. Thank you for joining today. Thank you for inviting. Thank you for inviting us. The reason uh, we invited you both was you published a paper on uh, the role of gamification, exploring how to explain COVID-19 and communicate that to communities in, in Colombia. So it would be great to start this episode to tell us about how that research project came about um, and kind of what did you find in the research? Okay, I will start. Um, I'm a researcher in gamification and uh, recently I developed an interest in using gamification and exploring how gamification can be used for sustainable development. Our university is uh, very keen to develop this area of, uh, area of research in sustainable development in general. So uh, the university has already developed quite a lot of partnerships uh, with other universities around the world. And since the group that coordinates these activities uh, knew about my area of interest and uh, they also knew about uh, all the other areas of interest of other partners, they introduced me and Paula when the pandemic started, uh, when Paula approached them with this new interesting idea. And this is how this research came about. Uh, well, um, uh, just to add that here at our university, we have been working with different um, communities, in particular with indigenous communities for more than 15 years. So this uh, gave us a very nice opportunity to have this uh, project with Agnesa and to bring uh, gamification on board to explore, you know, how it could work uh, working with indigenous communities in our territory. It was quite an urgent project. Uh, we had to do the background research, uh, the development uh, and the rollout of this project within basically three months. And uh, so we didn't really have uh, too much time to explore all the possible options. We had to come up with solutions quite fast, but eventually I think we came up with a very interesting solution of using gamification um, analog form, the post that we prepared and then printed out and located in community areas in indigenous community centers. 
and uh, in this post uh, we tried to explain in a way that would be more acceptable by the indigenous communities or how they can protect themselves against COVID. And the results so far have been quite interesting and uh, quite encouraging that indeed we did something valuable for the communities. Paula did several trips herself and uh, placed those posters in the community and she was able to witness firsthand uh, how people reacted to, to the results of our research. So in that case, it would be great to understand, I mean, it was completely rapid design iteration, it left three months is a tiny amount of time. What did you draw upon to decide how to use gamification? What game mechanics would be best utilised to deliver this project? Uh, well, first of all, uh, we need uh, to understand their environment, right? How they dress, how they behave in their daily basis. So, as I say before, we have been working with these communities for several years. So this gave us the chance to really to have an approach with them. And we contact uh, several artists, local artists, and also official translators because the poster were translated in seven different uh, indigenous languages. So it was great also to have this opportunity to provide them with their own uh, way of communication. And um, so this was part of the process, despite it was, as Agnesa was saying, uh, despite it was a, a really short project, uh, we developed this uh, strategy with them since the beginning. So the project was also in collaboration with the indigenous healthcare. Uh, so. We had these communications uh, with them since the beginning of the project. We sent them some uh, preliminary uh, drawing of uh, what we were thinking about. So we sent it to them. They sent it back. So we communicate with them through interviews constantly. Um, so they say, well, this looks good. This should be improved. Um, the houses are not like that. Houses should be like that way, so things like that. I guess the main constraints uh, for us were uh, the form in which we had to develop this solution. So it can't, it, it couldn't be something digital because most of the indigenous communities uh, don't have access uh, to mobile phones, uh, broadband connection, or simply mobile uh, network. So we knew that it would have to be something that is printed and can be placed uh, locally. And therefore, uh, this rolled out quite a lot of gamification mechanics that you would normally use in, uh, in, in an app, for example. We also looked at the materials that have already been developed and officially distributed by the government. So we also knew what was not working. We tried to make something different. And in, eventually, in terms of um, the gamification elements we used, um, we tried to picture something that you would normally describe as a virtual world, so a symbolic representation of the environment that was very native to them with uh, some symbolic representation of um, how, for example, the houses would look like, the attributes they use in everyday life, even if uh, in everyday life they don't necessarily use these attributes and maybe their houses don't look like that anymore. Um, then we used uh, an avatar which we wanted to... Um, picture as a local leader to somehow project the authority and therefore to develop more trust into our recommendations. 
and we uh, studied how tattoos uh, differ in different members of the communities and we chose the patterns that would normally be used by the local leaders. And finally, we used uh, something like puzzle games, something like Finding Wally, where we've hid different animals in the posters, uh, animals that were local to that area. And this was particularly engaging for kids. Through, uh, they really um, we were fascinated with animals. They were trying to find them on the posters. And then the, uh, this uh, indirectly involved adults who came to see what um, the kids were so fascinated about. And then they started explaining to the kids uh, what was written on the poster. This way, they also spent more time engaged with the poster themselves. The avatar, that's really interesting. What iterations did you go for? How did it take you to understand? I'll backtrack a little bit. You said there was lots of different languages you translated into. So I'm guessing lots of different indigenous communities. So what the avatar needed to do and look like to be seen as an authority, was that changed for every single poster in geographically? Or was there some unifying avatar definitions that meant that it could be used in all posters? Uh, in terms of avatar, it was uh, unified the uh, visual representation of communities was more or less homogeneous across different communities. Uh, there was only one community for which we had to adjust uh, the clothing because uh, they have very special way of uh, dressing up. But uh, still different communities had different indigenous languages, so we had to translate the poster into six different languages. Yeah, that, that was my question. So normally you talk about with these sort of things you have to translate and change the language, whereas here we're also talking about the symbolic representation potentially needing to change. So would you say you ended up with like two types of poster or seven? Yeah. No, no, it, it were two types of posters because they're uh, dressed different. But in all the communities uh, we visit, uh, they, they speak different um, dialects. So... The design were two types of designs, but the posters were, were translated in several different dialects of their, their communities. So you mentioned like it was a successful project. Um, what was success that you measured? How do you know it was so successful? Well, first of all, because they were super happy to have uh, really something that matters to them and represent them. Because as Agnesa say, normally they receive uh, information really in an occidental way. So this information, the poster they, they really, they even have before the, the project were not really related with their, their way of dress, their communities, their, you know, their, their main characteristics. So when they received this, they were super happy because they really see themselves on the posters. The other thing uh, was also the language, you know, the different um, uh, information we provide them in their own dialect, because normally they receive uh, also the information in Spanish. So for them was great. And uh, when we finish um, some of the visits, uh, they even ask if we have more material because they were happy to have something, you know, to show their children to to uh, teach them to read, because normally they also receive some of the informational educational material in Spanish too. So this was great because uh, first, uh, as I say, they felt represented uh, represented by themselves, 
But the other good uh, part of the project was that normally this community, well, these communities are really isolated. So it is difficult to arrive there, to approach them uh, with uh, news, with healthcare uh, services, because beside the project and the tests we provided, uh, because we run a seroprevalence study along the project too. So we collect some samples uh, during the project. So we also provide other extra medicines. Uh, so we run some kind of like a health uh, visits uh, to them. So they were happy to receive us and to express how they felt in regards uh, to the virus, because for them, this is something is not new. They normally have a lot of viruses around them. They're accustomed to manage uh, the situation uh, with their proper, uh, you know, like cultural uh, herbs and with the uh, traditional medicine. So for them, it was very nice to express how they felt regarding this because they were saying, why so, you know, all this mess? This is normal for us. Uh, but uh, it was also great for us and really interesting to understand and to learn how they perceive the, the virus. You know, in the way we perceive the virus, they, they see the virus completely different. From the research point of view, this was actually the most challenging part of the project, engaging with the community in ways that would also be acceptable for the research, because first and foremost, we are researchers. For example, normally when you conduct an interview, you record it, then you transcribe it, analyze it using standard methods. When you want to do the evaluation, you either run a survey or again you conduct interviews that you record and so on and so forth. We couldn't do any of that with these communities. We couldn't record uh, interviews. We couldn't have formal protocol for the interviews. What we could have was an informal conversation that would then be captured by the uh, field researcher in notes. The same problem was when it, uh, the time came to evaluate the results. We couldn't uh, give them survey and ask to fill it in or uh, conduct formal interviews. All we could do was uh, bring out the results, the outputs of our project, and observe how they react. So what uh, Paula and um, uh, Jose Mauricio, that the researcher noticed when they brought in the poster, was that in some communities, after they've uh, interacted with the poster, they actually started changing behavior. For example, those who were rapidly tested and, uh, and the result was positive, they started self-isolating. People even started uh, wearing masks, even though probably this was not the most necessary measure. So they really started taking it a little bit more seriously, and we observed it in the changes in their behavior. Like, so I mean, even health education in the UK is a real challenge to get people to change behavior. My mind's going off to think about how do we make more engaging posters? Do we need to put like, where's Wally's equivalent on posters, on bus stops and things like that? The key game element, having to search these animals, and so that made people stop and look at the poster and engage with the poster. How much more successful do you think the poster became because you people spent their time to play the game and read the message? What, did some people engage with the game but not take any note of the messaging. And if they did, how do you make sure that doesn't happen? And how long did they engage with it for? I'm adding another one to it. Well, as I say, while we were there, you know, running the test, um, we somehow prepared with their leader 
a communication strategy to tell them what why we were there. So the first people that was engaged were the kids, as Agnes was saying. So then, you know, the parents came to them and uh, they start to play with the with the poster. So normally we were in each community around three days. So the first day we start with kind of like a meeting, you know, with the leader and the community to explain them uh, what was going to be the activity, why we were there and uh, starting to, you know, communicate with them asking them about uh, why they know about the virus. Also, you know, doing some um, conversations because, as Agnesa said, it was not really recorded or uh, standard interviews. So uh, we start this conversation with them and um, slowly, slowly we start to see the change in behavior. So uh, they were really asking, you know, how was the virus um, here in, in, in the cities? As you know, as some of them travel to sail, uh, you know, handcrafts to the main uh, cities uh, nearby. So normally it's just the leaders that are um, allowed to go out from the communities. So they really do not have much information from outside the communities. So the poster and the conversation with us really help uh, them to, you know, to have different communication, but also to us to understand how they behave and how they react against the virus. These are very difficult questions you're asking. Um, I guess uh, to complement what Paula said, uh, we probably were lucky in a sense that these communities are not suffering from noise pollution. They are not spo- spoiled with attention. So what we brought was very beautiful, was very attractive to them, and they engaged with it, and eventually they engaged with the messages themselves. Um, how enge- to engage a British public? It's a difficult question. I, d- I don't really have an answer to that. But uh, um, I agree that uh, a similar experiment in the UK perhaps uh, wouldn't uh, have been as fruitful simply because uh, people's attention span is just short, so short. So, you know, for us as an Occidental people, this uh, project, at least to me, you know, teach, uh, teach me that there are other ways to live, you know, and that... We are all the time in a hurry, you know, we are all the time uh, thinking in uh, work and meetings and for them, life is different, right? So time is different there. So they they have a completely different point of view of life or the important things, the things that really matters for them. So, of course, as when we send all the material and we visit them, uh, you know, also after they receive the material, so they they ask for more. So they hang, they they receive this like a piece of art also to have in their home. So more than the message, they they really feel part of it when they when they they have a look of the of the poster. So that's really interesting. I, I was thinking about this. I was wondering, can you use the same type of game or poster again with the same audiences? Or would you have to come up with something new next time round? And you're kind of saying, yeah, maybe a sequence of the same types of game. I'm just thinking we're quite jaded in the Western world sometimes. 
I've done that type of game now. I want something completely different next time to listen to your message. What, what do you think? A game will be great. You know, like a, a really board game to engage uh, them, to have more time, to have different uh, feedbacks also, you know, because this, it was just the way we were able to see how they look at it, uh, the questions they have, you know, around the poster. But maybe if you have a board, the game, you know, you interact more with different uh, people at the same time. So maybe their reaction could be different or, you know, the approach and the results also could be uh, changed a little bit. I don't know, Agnesa, what do you think? Uh, it would be interesting to try and engage them more into the process of creation of these posters. So perhaps we have created a framework of how a poster could look like. These are the basic elements that we can play with. But then if we had time and we could engage them into the process of iterative co-creation of uh, the specific components of this poster, perhaps this, this would be the next step of trying to develop a different intervention. I think you're completely right, Agnes, on your previous statement about uh, in the UK, people's attention span is probably a lot, a lot shorter. Um, but the whole point of things like marketing, advertisement, even just art, um, even street art, is just can be so captivating for people to take attention. I agree with you. I do have some hope that the British public would engage if they saw a very pretty and engaging poster. But the question I want to ask you is, where can we use gamification and, and extract what you've learned from this, but also other experience, other knowledge? Where is the role for gamification and health information or health knowledge transfer globally in other populations and other cultures? Where do you think gamification sits? I think from my own personal experience and from all the examples that I've seen in the area of well-being, mental health, uh, physical health, what gamification helps achieve is uh, shift the focus from seeing different practices as an obligation. For example, it's my obligation to take medication or to uh, eat healthier or to do more physical activities to stay healthy, to this actually being fun and uh, an engaging and enjoyable experience. For example, if we take running, uh, the fitness, fitness trackers usually use qu quite a basic uh, set of gamification elements. Usually it's points that track your uh, progress and so on and so forth. And uh, on average, uh, people stop using fitness trackers uh, three months later. <laughs> so that's the lifespan of an average uh, fitness tracker. But then we have... Uh, uh, solutions like Zombie Run or uh, Pokemon Go, which are much more engaging and uh, they offer people a different type of activities. For, so for them, it's not uh, simply running anymore to stay fit. For them, it, it's a game. Uh, they need to run away from zombies or they need to find Pokemon. I think this is where the power of gamification is. It, it can turn a boring or a monotonous activity into something that, that is fun and helps you to stay healthy. I completely agree with things like health behaviours and health activities like fitness and exercise. But your research was a great example of how a very analogue approach to gamification, and well, a game within a poster, results in higher engagement to a health message. Do you know of examples of gamification features used in other areas where it's not about games being used to make running fun, but games being used to say that being more active is a good thing, you should take this messaging on. The thing that I find when I speak to a lot of patient service users is that people generally know that 
eating healthy is good for you. Being active is good for you. But the messaging alone, knowing that isn't enough. I completely agree that we need to make things fun. Can you make everything fun? Can you make eating bro- more broccoli, more gamified and fun? Do you, think, do you think there is a way to make that work? Well, recently I read about an interesting experiment with virtual reality. So there have been studies that showed that virtual reality can actually change our perception of taste. And during a virtual reality hackathon, one programmer decided to create an experience, uh, experience of uh, eating French fries um, or seeing that you eat French fries while he was eating carrots, carrot sticks. And he could actually report that he felt uh, that he was eating French fries while he was uh, eating carrot sticks. So this um, might be a little bit departing from gamification, but it's, this is one example of uh, where this can actually be achieved. Uh, another interesting impact that gamification can help achieve is um, not so much telling people what to do, but uh, letting them explore different options and trade-offs and uh, increasing their capacity to act. I'll give you an example of another project that I've uh, just finished this summer. Uh, I finished part of that project. The project still goes on. The objective of the project was to engage uh, impoverished communities in Brazil, in uh, urban areas of Brazil, into the conversation about uh, the pandemic um, with a particular focus on fake news. Because in Brazil, uh, fake news were taken to the whole new level, uh, especially around the pandemic. And uh, what we did was uh, we designed something like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, a role-play game uh, using Brazilian heroes. So we designed a quest that they had to complete. And within that quest, people had, um, they were playing specific roles and they had bits of information. Some of them were relevant, some of them were irrelevant, some of them were maybe even misleading. And so the team had to work together and to sort out together what they need to do in order to complete the the quest. They uh, couldn't complete it alone. And they also had to uh, discuss within the team which bits of information were relevant to their quest and helped to solve uh, the problem and which were not. Uh, Interestingly, this created an environment where they started developing deep conversations about perhaps the political situation or the health situation in Brazil um, and uh, perhaps uh, problems in the communities. So... um, This gamified environment uh, helped them not only to develop critical thinking about the problem, about that specific problem, it also created a a platform where they became maybe a little bit freer of uh, their biases that would normally frame their thinking and limit their thinking. And they became more open to new ideas to develop critical thinking about um, around this problem. So I think that is really interesting because that kind of leads down the idea that games can coach us into thinking differently around health behaviours. Yeah, we have also a very nice example here in, in Colombia, in my university. We have a university hospital and of course they are, you know, different um, branch of research there. So one of those is connected also with with, um, with engineerings that provide uh, prosthesis, you know, from people that lose an arm or, uh, you know, a leg because of an accident, because of war here or things like that. 
So through a game with augmented reality, uh, what they are doing is basically people do not really uh, receive the prosthesis the first months or they reject it with the time. So they build this game through augmented reality for people that need the prosthesis to, uh, you know, to really adapt it to them. So through the game, they are trying to, you know, that the people that need the prosthesis they start to play through this uh, augmented reality game or they are, you know, appropriated the, the prosthesis uh, slowly, slowly. Are you saying they were playing the game before they had the prosthetic? Yes, yes. So because, you know, normally they they reject it. I don't know why, because, you know, like normally the, the maybe the body or, you know, the mind, uh, it is a... It's a, a, a is a part that do not really belong to them, right? So slowly, slowly through this game, they started to adapt it to to the to the processes. Um, how you say that in English? Prosthesis. <laughs> Prosthesis. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's okay. Everyone will know exactly what you meant anyway, because you were like that close to to it anyway. I think Ben could have done with this, had to do this early in lockdown because his app at Good Boost was to get people to swim or MSK and then they weren't allowed in the swimming pools. So an AR game to help them adapt to the swimming pools, even without the swimming pool, could have been just the same. Both of those were great examples of kind of how gamification is being used. Do either of you kind of have any key foundation principles as to, we've mentioned already how it's so important it has to be culturally dependent on the community in terms of the game mechanics and game principles that you're designing in. Have you learned anything else in terms of how we build better games for either health behaviours or health education? So for me, uh, two basic principles are um, context sensitivity, uh, what you mentioned about cultural sensitivity, but it can be also more practical. For example, when we were looking at uh, uh, how different messages should be uh, presented and uh, pictured on the poster, uh, we had to understand what would be feasible for the community uh, and uh, what would not be accepted by them. For example, in the infographics that they received from the government, uh, the message about washing your hands was uh, depicted as uh, to a pair of hands uh, wash, uh, with soap under the tap water. But this community doesn't have plumbing. They bring water in plastic tanks from the river. So if you show them a tap, this immediately creates this uh, rejection of the message. And this is how we presented washing hands on the poster. We uh, drew a woman uh, carrying a tank uh, and another woman washing her hands. Uh, well, this one is tilting the uh, plastic tank. The other principle for me is uh, really understanding the objectives even before you start talking about the gamification uh, and how the potential solution could look like. Uh, For example, in this project, initially we were thinking of perhaps uh, splitting the message into two, the first one to delve into the Uh, how COVID came about and how it affected the whole world and in the second one to focus on the uh, actual recommendations. When we did the background research, we uh, saw that the communities uh, were strongly convinced that the virus is man-made and it was made by uh, white people to destroy uh, indigenous knowledge uh, because the virus mostly affected old people and old people are the ones who possess indigenous knowledge. 
So what we decided was that our key objective is to change the behavior of uh, people how, uh, to protect them from COVID, not so much to change their mind about where the uh, virus originated. So most of our posters and uh, poster ended up being about how to behave. And only in the corner, we did spend a bit of uh, space to show how we think uh, COVID originated. And we also tried not to contradict too much what they thought about it. So this really helped us uh, to shape what exactly we were doing there. So I'd like to add to that because I, I, I'd like to start with understanding the objectives too. Did you have any particular game design frameworks you like to use? How did you approach the game design? Or did you already just know which type of game you wanted? Uh, usually I start with um, the framework used in operations management, uh, perhaps <laughs> heritage of my background. Um, I like to use causal mapping, uh, where I, under uh, I map out the objectives and then I uh, break uh, it down into specific actions. And then I start brainstorming, okay, how can different actions be depicted? Um, in parallel with that, I usually look at uh, what... Um, type of game or gamified solution could work here at all. For example, when we worked on this Colombian project, uh, it was obvious that it would have to be a poster, so that there was not much thinking around that. Uh, when we were working on the Brazilian project, there, there was actually quite a lot of discussion of uh, how the game should look like. Initially, I thought that uh, the best approach would be to design something like a visual narrative uh, with branching out stories where people could make certain choices and that would determine uh, how the story would evolve. I still think that it would have been a great solution uh, and it would have its own benefits, but eventually we ran out of time, so uh, we had to focus on the more feasible solution, which was a role-play game. Uh, and then uh, once we've done this mapping exercise and we understood uh, what the basic, com basic components uh, should be in the game and what form of game or gamified solution that could be, then we're trying to bridge the two and to find ways of uh, how that particular game should look like. Fantastic. It's always great when guests go through their game principles because sometimes we really try to dig into games and ask them kind of, how do you get there? And some of our guests go, I just test and try things uh, and then have a framework to work for. But that, thank you, Agnes. And that's really good to kind of tell out to our listeners kind of what that framework is and how people approach it. What I'd like to ask you both now is, do you both have any favorite games um, and does that influence your thinking does that influence your game designing at all well my two favorite games are the, the computer game is civilization six sigma civilization and the board game uh, i really like salem I, li I really like playing it in companies because i think it's a great way to get to know people better because they you can learn so much about people from how they interact in this game I've recently and, been a convert to civilization, and uh, last night I got my first ever cultural vit victory, and that, that was a big moment for me. Congratulations. In terms of how it impacts um, my game design skills, I don't think those two games uh, impact uh, that much in particular, but uh, in general playing the more game you can, the better, because then it uh, kind of widens up you're thinking about uh, how a potential solution could look like at all. And Paula, how about you? Uh, well, as I am a marine biologist and working basically in marine spatial planning, so there is a UNESCO game and 
you basically, normally what I do in my daily basis research is uh, work with technology to provide high resolution maps about the distribution of the marine environments and also, you know, different layers of activities that occurs uh, on the sea because there are a lot of stakeholders there. So there is also a game board, you know, when you have to provide information with these maps uh, to stakeholder engagement, right? So, so to really take decisions with the different stakeholders around the map. So the game is great because it helps you in a different and conflict activities between uh, oil and gas people and fisheries, for instance, you know, that they have a lot of conflicts because of the space. So we use also games, you know, like board games uh, during these uh, workshop activities. My favorite game uh, play uh, is uh, Risk. It's the only way <laughs> I, I, I really like Risk and I'm not really fan of, you know, like games uh, through computer or stuff like that. Not really. Not much. Uh, the UNESCO board game sounds fascinating. Also, a great example of how games foster knowledge transfer and also thinking in a different and critical way. Um, do you know? Do you have any more information about the UNESCO game and kind of how it came about? Because that is fascinating. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, there there are standard uh, frameworks of methods uh, in the UNESCO uh, web page dedicated particularly to marine spatial planning. So they provide you kind of like step by steps to how to build a game from your own needs, from your territorial needs. So basically, uh, through GIS and modeling, we provide the different layers, you know, from the activities, environmental setting around the area. So you uh, put everything in the same map and through the map for instance you have a particular area of interest where for instance indigenous communities go to fish and in this area it will be past submarine cable and basically you know if the submarine cable pass it will interfere with the daily basis activities for the fishermen there so you need really to have some um tools you, to organize the space so through the game uh, you it's a it's a board game so you uh, use this during the workshop activity uh, with all the stakeholders and you start to play with them which uh, could be the best solution to have uh, you know on board all the participants all the activities and that all people have a voice during the decision making process so yes it's, it's, it's really great and it, it's been improving uh, now there is also um also a uh, um, technical, more complex, uh, you know, part of the game. So when you really, really need to provide this uh, for stakeholders engagement, for the government, so you provide the results of the game and then you put this in modeling, you know, uh, in modeling softwares to really uh, have the best decision accounting with the results of the game. That's proper, proper, proper interesting. And the idea of how games are changing decision-making as such senior governmental levels on such important issues like environment and health decisions. Uh, my last question is, Do you, have you seen any other great examples or anything that you use in your daily life of where games are influencing health behaviours or creating health knowledge and information? 
Um, some of the examples I've been really fascinated by and inspired, um, inspired uh, the, uh, the use of virtual reality for various aspects of uh, treatment. Um, there are quite a lot of examples described by Jane McGonigal. If anyone is interested, uh, please read uh, Super Better. This book is full of references and uh, amazing examples. And uh, so she describes an example of using virtual reality um, of a nice cave, uh, cave that um, uh, the patients who undergo burn treatment uh, explore while they are being treated. And this helps to shift the focus, uh, to shift their attention from the fact that they're in pain and it's a very painful procedure to uh, being in an interesting environment that they're exploring. Uh, another interesting example is um, uh, how virtual reality was used uh, with kids in Brazil uh, during the vaccination, uh, ordinary vaccination. And this helped to eliminate crying and uh, screaming of the kids because um, they didn't feel that they are going to be in pain anymore. They felt like heroes who are protecting a virtual world through this shot. So again, it completely shifted the perception from pain to doing a hero act. So I think these are great examples of uh, how this can help. There are lots, also lots of interesting examples in mental health and in rehabilitation. Recently, again, I, I saw another example of how virtual reality was um, used to help um, re rehabilitate uh, prisoners, convicts who are about to be released. Uh, since they've spent maybe 10 years in prison, the world has changed. So for them, it can be a mental shock to be back uh, in a regular environment. And through virtual reality and exploration of different everyday situations, uh, they develop uh, mental toughness, um, uh, mental resilience that uh, prepares them for those situations when they encounter them in real life. And this um, already helped to reduce the um, re repeated convictions and them coming back to prison again. So I think all these are really great examples that show just how powerful this uh, persuasive technology can be. Well, not really, really related with health, but um, I have been also involved in, again, with marine science. <laughs> so, for instance, we uh, develop with the maps, we develop 3D models of the reefs or, you know, the underwater environments. So we have been building uh, augmented reality games, uh, for instance, for people that have some handicaps and could not dive. So this helped them to really see what's going on there. You know, what could you find underwater environments? The other way we are using this is for marine protected areas. For instance, we uh, provide the game and the augmented reality. So when we you reach the MPA, the Marine Protected Area, you are going to visit. So the park rangers uh, showed the, you know, the visitors uh, the park, the underwater park, so they can show them where they are going to dive, what we are going to encounter, what it is important to uh, conserve, uh, what is important in terms of ecosystem services, what is there in terms of uh, fisheries activities and, you know, for food uh, provision for the local communities. So, you know, through the game and through augmented reality, you also can engage people towards environmental protection. But I have to be honest that before I met Agnesa, I didn't know that it was part of gamification itself. So I use it, you know, and I... 
apply these methods, but after my collaboration with Agnes, I say, okay, this is one way to run gamification strategies uh, with communities. These are such interesting projects. I've got to know, what are you working on next? Well, we've been trying with Agnesa um, for a couple of months now. Um, there is um, a strategy here in Colombia, well, uh, in all around the world, but towards more uh, sustainable mobility. So we are now trying to get some funds uh, to provide electromobility for fisheries. So the idea with the local fishermen, so the idea is to provide them with electrical motors and through gamification, you know, to engage them and to appropriate the technology, you know, to really uh, help them to change, uh, you know, to a standard way of fishing and how this will improve, improve not just the environment, but also, you know, their economy because they will uh, spend less in fuel and all these things. This is one of the ideas we are chasing now. Yeah, in terms of the behavior, it's um, it has two problems. The first one is that um, quite often what happens in these projects, once the project is over, uh, all the technology slowly deteriorates because the community was never really involved in the process of developing it. So a bunch of researchers uh, with uh, exacerbated ego came, put it in place and left. Uh, they uh, declared that the project was a success. So what happens afterwards, nobody cares. So we really think that gamification can help to change that and to involve uh, people early on into this process and to help them develop the sense that they actually own what will help them develop. And the second problem is that uh, with uh, renewable energy, and this is not a problem unique to only that area, uh, with renewable energy, the amount of supply will be constrained uh, and it would, uh, the demand would have to be modeled in order to meet the supply. So uh, what we might observe there is it might be the problem of the tragedy of the commons. So if it's a common resource, then people might just abuse uh, the use of it in their own interests. So I believe that gamification can help to change this behavior and look at the common resource as uh, the community resource that needs to be taken care of uh, so that everybody benefits. That's, that's a great concept. It, it can be transferred to health knowledge just as easily, can't it? And I think just an example how gamification actually applied in the right way actually have a huge impact on every area of life. But I think what I really enjoyed most about what you said, Agnes, is the idea that gamification used to involve the community so that after these projects, they take ownership of it and actually creates a long-term change rather than just a short-term flash-in-the-pan research project, which happens so often. Here's hoping you find the right call and get the funding to go and do that. Uh, Agnesa Poor, thank you so much for joining for the session. It's been fascinating to explore so many avenues of the role of gamification, um, but it's been great to talk through how analogue forms of gamification can have such an impact in communities when it comes to health knowledge and health behaviours as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting. Thank you so much for having us here.